Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, where we talk about the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online from the San Francisco Bay Area. I am John Agroni, film section editor for theyoungfolks.com. I also write about films and TV shows for publications like Inverse, TV Line, The School, and of course, Cinemaholics. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a freelance writer. You've seen his work everywhere from Slant Magazine to Cinema Blend, The Playlist, and more. It's Will Ashton. Hey, Will. Hello. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com, including written reviews, video reviews, and other bonus content. Also, our merch. Cinemaholics merch is on our website. Get yourself a hoodie, mug, t-shirt, shot glass, whatever you like. And of course, if you're like, okay, I want to get some merch. Maybe maybe you already bought the hoodie, the t-shirt, and everything else. You're like, I want to support Cinemaholics on a more consistent basis. Well, you can go to our Patreon patreon.com slash cinemaholics and if you're like whoa, whoa look the holidays just happened i'm strapped for cash that's cool no worries at all you could always help us out by leaving us uh, a rating on apple podcasts always helps when you let us know what you like about the show what you think could be better and all that good stuff mm-hmm. we got a few ratings over the holidays and uh yeah. we'll, we, we clearly ruffled some feathers did we <laughs> yeah we did I, our, our average rating went down a little bit but you know mm. what, are, what are you gonna do so if you can help us out you know i, I get it people it's People are having a, a go of it, and uh, apparently sure. we, we we made some enemies, but that's it's not the first time. Sure, I was going to ask: Did uh, do you think anyone got some Cinemaholics merch in their Christmas uh, collections this year? Like they they got some uh, some hoodies and T-shirts and shot glasses under the Christmas tree mm-hmm. this year? I assume so because we had some sales, and it was like you know right after Black Friday, we got some sales in the lead ups to Christmas. There was a we had a nice. promotion going on, so like. I think so. I know I haven't been told. Nobody's been like, hey, like you, well, you, you made my daughter's Christmas. You know, she, she sure. wanted one thing this year. <laughs> she wanted Tickle Me Elmo, but I gave her the Cinemaholics hoodie <laughs> and she lit up like the the Christmas tree in front of her. So, yeah. 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 She, <laughs> I thought you were going to say she lit the Christmas tree on fire. Out well, of, uh, I mean, that'd be a fair. And, you know, I mean, yeah. yeah. yeah if, if, if you gave Understandable a kid, reaction. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, this week we were talking about a few films that uh, we've, we've been excited to talk about. Now, The Tragedy oh, of Macbeth yeah. is our big review this week. Mm. Uh, I think this mm. is, uh, I'm, I'm kind of gearing up. I've got my, my boxing gloves on. I think we're going to have cool. quite a conversation about that new film directed sure. by Joel Cohen and starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Later in the show, we'll talk about Sing 2. Uh, who, who made Sing 2 again, Will Ashton? Somebody I think you you like a lot. Garth Jennings. Garth yes, Jennings. Returning. Yes. To write and direct, he also wrote and directed the first film. That's right. And then we'll also, we'll finish the show with a review of The Lost Daughter, which has been in limited release for a little bit, but it's now on Netflix. So you might have already had a chance to see it. And if so, either way, you can hear us talk about The Lost Daughter, which stars Olivia Coleman and was directed mm-hmm. by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Also stars, of course, Jesse Buckley and Dakota Johnson and Ed Harris. For now, though, uh, I, I do want to say, you know, we, we usually wait till the end of the show to bring this up, but... I just want to tease real quick that we are going to be doing our top films of the year episode. Um, I think 99% sure it's going to be next week. We're going to, we're going to do that. It's going to be our top tens uh, between Will and myself, which we do every year, but I think Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be a little different this year. Usually we do it with a special guest. We don't have a special guest lined up. I think it's just going to be you and me. Just the two of us. Yeah, we can make it. uh, If if we we try, if we try, I I think that uh, we, we have plenty of it's the the thing is it's Mm going to be, a very high quality year, I think, 
in terms of movies. And so if we had a special person on, I'm worried that it would be a three hour episode again. <laughs> so I don't want that to yeah. happen. But uh, yeah, with just the two of us, I think we can get this uh, get this taken care of and should be a great episode. Cool. All right. Well, then without further ado, let's talk about the tragedy of Macbeth. of my thumbs something wicked this way comes so as i already mentioned at the top of the show tragedy of macbeth now this is the first time one of the cohen brothers is directing without the other so joel cohen directs this yeah, film without his brother I was wondering about that because Joel Cohen was solely credited as a director on at least half their films, like going back to Blood Simple. I think the only time they they were both credited, the first time they were both credited was uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But I wasn't 100%. I'm assuming Ethan was just uncredited through all those, but I wasn't 100% sure if he just. That's always been my assumption. Yeah, that's why I thought it's not like he wasn't there. Right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, they, they wrote those other films together, so it's to be assumed that um, Ethan, you know, was also, you know, directing and helping to edit as well. But, yeah, I wasn't, I didn't want to say with certainty because I didn't want someone in the comments being like, um, actually, uh, Joel directed Hutsucker Proxy by himself. And well, that's, like, yeah. that's, it's kind of like you say, I mean, there are a lot of rules and regulations that go into the DGA that go into who gets credit for certain things. And I think there's a reason why you know the cohen brothers like that's a thing and so yeah that's been my understanding is that he they've made these films together and so like yeah you can you can be pedantic you can be semantic about it but yeah i think by all intents and purposes really this is the first time joel cohen's kind of striking out and doing his own thing here and uh, i don't think anything there's there's no bad blood or anything between the brothers i think they just had a conflict of projects and here Um, we are is that it? I've heard different things. The thing I heard is that Ethan is, I guess, more interested in writing plays right now. And I guess he's kind of just not really had the the interest to continue directing. Yeah, but. yeah. He just, it, it's just, it's not like a growing apart thing even. It's just sort of like, yeah, this is what they're interested in right now. That's my right. understanding. And I but, think that's perfectly uh, understandable. But it's interesting that, you know, last week our main review was The Matrix Resurrections, which was Lana Wachowski exclusive. You know, Lily is not involved in that film she's not directing anymore it seems and before that we had peter fairly uh directing without bobby fairly you know with green book and so it's just kind of like these weird uh it seems like there's a divide with these sibling filmmakers right now Um, i wouldn't even call it a divide i think that like yeah i mean you you do something with a a creative partner long enough you sort of like reach the end of it you know it's natural can and it's not even a natural conclusion i could see these guys coming teaming back up together at some point hopefully and uh i I just looked it up and it's it's kind of like i said um and like you said too so up until 2003 joel received sole credit for directing and ethan Mm -hmm. did get credit for producing but that was because of guild rules um back then I figured yeah. you weren't allowed to have multiple director credits unless you were like an established duo. And so that's kind of what changed. So after 2003, they were able to like establish themselves with duo. And then he started getting that's always been my understanding is that it's not that he didn't direct. It's that he just didn't get credit. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, we weren't there. We, we can't say with 100 percent certainty. But yeah, that I think that that is the uh, pretty fair understanding what happened. 
Okay. So what was the first one that got created together? I thought it was Oh Brother Where Art Thou, but that would be like 2000. So you're saying it was 2003 when that? Yeah, so I changed? guess it would be, I think that the movie that year was Intolerable Cruelty, right? Was it so, Intolerable Cruelty? Okay. That's uh, before, one of the few of that I haven't seen. Well, before that, we had The Man Who Wasn't There, right? 2001. And I think they do get credit now. That's the thing is I don't know how how these things work retroactively, right? Like, I don't know if um, they went back and were like, well, hey, can we make it so that this get credit gives you know, goes to this person. Right. And it's, it's hard to say. I, I don't think we need to go down that route. Yeah, that's, it's, it's very pedantic things. I, I'm sure 85% of our listeners could care less about, but yeah, it yeah, interests me. Like, yeah. I like both these guys, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the tragedy of Macbeth, the film that Joel Cohen did by himself this time. Uh, and with his wife, Frances McDormand, who stars in the film and also produces. Uh, and as I mentioned before, Denzel Washington is the star. He stars as Macbeth. This is a black and white film. It's A24. It is also coming out through Apple TV+. Plus. It's in limited release right now. January 14th is when you'll be able to catch it on streaming via Apple TV+. Plus. And this thing is getting critical just acclaim. People love this movie, the Rotten Tomatoes. Like we'll talk, we'll play the Rotten Tomatoes game later, but I think, will you have a, I, I don't think it's uh, spoiling anything or helping you out too much to let you know critics are, critics are into this one. And the, the weird mm. thing, though, is that uh, not, not, not every critic's into this. Did you did you know, Will Ashton? There, there are a couple of critics, maybe even just one, who are, are tragedy Macbeth, you know, what's what's the opposite word of an uh, apologist? Sure. I mean, I, there have been a few, a few naysayers, I guess you could yeah, say. Yeah. Uh, I know uh, from your letterbox reaction that you are... Mm less than favorable on the film and i think oh yeah that's oh i'm one of the i'm one of the detractors for this film Uh uh-oh yes and so when i we have a problem yeah when i saw the initial early reviews i was like okay good it's probably going to be good yes 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 and then i saw your negative reviews like okay it's probably going to be really good okay yes 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 (laughs) (laughs) yeah so this is a retelling of the shakespearean tragedy really one of the most definitive shakespearean tragedies we've gotten a macbeth movie we've done so many of these before i think the most recent one was probably uh like more straightforward adaptation was probably kenneth Branagh's. Uh, i know we had lady macbeth starring florence Pugh, but that was more of like a spiritual sort of like not even not a retelling yeah. it was it was sort of just like a its own sort of i, I don't do, you, do we have a word do we have a vocabulary for what kind of movie lady macbeth is because it's not the story of macbeth but it is taking the archetype of that character and putting her into a new story right. it's almost like a macbeth anthology it's a a reboot. <laughs> Just a kidding. reboot? Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, I'm trying to remember. I mean, there's been several adaptations. I know there was the Michael Fassbender one that he did with. Uh, I can't remember that guy's oh, name. I the forgot guy about did, that uh, one. With True Marian History Cotillard. of the Kelly Gang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that one, I think that was maybe not the most recent one, but one of the more recent adaptations. Well, well definitely like a Macbeth. bigger deal. I totally forgot about it, but I guess it was <laughs> like people cared about it. Justin Kurzel was the uh, the director of that one and yeah yeah uh, sean harris was in that uh, also jack rayner and elizabeth debicki i i never saw macbeth though that's a 2015 film i i just skipped it i had no interest i, I remember like when michael fassbender kept coming out with like like this and then he did assassin's creed and he's just kind of like doing these movies like that nobody cared about they, they would come out around like december or something and they'd be him being like a famous character and people would be like whatever we like you in your magneto uh, that was basically the- sure well, I mean, I think the three most famous ones are the Orson Welles film, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Roman Polanski one, and then there's Throne of Blood, which uh, some people may or may not know, the Kurosawa film, which is also 
uh, an adaptation of Macbeth. I think those are probably the three most well-known or most famous film adaptations yeah, of the you, text. You don't think Branagh's is? Uh, I feel like Branagh's more known for like his other Shakespeare adaptations. Like, sure, like Hamlet. Yeah. But I, right. I don't know. I, I, I would say that his... I, I, I feel like a lot of people haven't seen Throne of Blood. Uh, that's my only you, you don't consternation think so? there. I mean, yeah, I, sure. mean, I think a lot of people know like Polanski seven, and Wells, but I mean, it's a right. different era. I guess. Yeah. I mean, certainly it's been a long time <laughs> since hmm. any of those films have come out. But yeah, I mean, I feel like I, I remember like when I read Macbeth in high school, like they, they showed us clips from the uh, Orson Welles one. I remember seeing clips from the Polanski one. And I remember seeing, I think, at least something from the Kurosawa Throne of Blood. Just kind of being like, they're not all stuffy white guys. Like, you know, here, check this one out. It's like, you know, uh, and also, you know, there's just a bunch of. Uh, uh, a bunch of other films that, like you say, have taken from the text quite liberally. But well, uh, you know, I think yeah. we're overlooking one of the most definitive Macbeth portrayals and retellings ever, and that is, of course, Gargoyles, the Disney animated show from the 1990s. And I say that unironically. Like Gargoyles had an awesome Macbeth like tie-in, like the way they handled that story and they worked him into this like mythological lore. It's pretty pretty excellent. Um, but yeah, that said. This new adaptation is very different from other ones we've gotten before, but it, in some ways it really is striking at the heart of what Macbeth has really been about for the longest time. It's uh, it, it's a lean film for sure. It, it's uh, just 105 minutes, and it it really is like just taking the dialogue, taking the the set pieces and the minimalist playwright sort of stage production aspect of the play. And, you know, transposing it into a black and white film with, like I said, like very minimal sets, uh, very ethereal, very surreal kind of uh, atmosphere. If you don't know the story of Macbeth, it's very simple. You have this guy named Macbeth. He is, uh, I think, the Thane uh, of uh, a Scottish uh, kingdom or something like the Thane of Cawdor, I think it is, but I don't want to misspeak. And he gets a premonition from these witches that tell him like you you got to be king you, you got to be king but to do so you have to take down the existing king and in this case that king is played by Brendan Gleeson the witches are played by uh, Catherine Hunter and if he if he carries this out what will it do to his soul and so on and so on and then of course Lady Macbeth is also an influence on him making a decision to possibly pull on a coup and so that's that's the story here uh, now I already said I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a detractor but I'm gonna say. On the positives, this film's cinematography is absolutely brilliant. I mean, uh, you watch this movie, it's, uh, you're, you're drinking in just like crisp, unbelievably sharp filmmaking uh, yeah. to the level that I, I think that it, it beggars belief. Like, I, I cannot believe some of the shots that they pulled off here. Bruno. I really dig the whole production design, all the aesthetics. Uh, it's just full on great across the board for me. Yeah. Bruno Debonel, who I believe has been the cinematographer for the last couple um, Coen Brothers films, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think he, I'm pretty sure he shot Inside Lewin Davis, right? Inside yeah. Lewin Davis back in 2013. Well, he didn't do uh, uh, he didn't do Hail Caesar because that was Roger Deakins, I think. But he did. I think did he do um, Ballad of Buster Scruggs? He did Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Okay. Yeah, about to say he did Ballad of Buster Scruggs. His last one was Woman in the Window. So we, we mentioned mm -hmm. him on the show before. I think um, also did Darkest Hour, uh, Miss Peregrine's. Uh, what was that called? Miss Peregrine's House for Kids or Home for home Peculiar for, Children? Home for Peculiar Children. Um, but yeah, Inside Lewin Davis. I, I don't. I don't think he's done any other films with the Coen Brothers. Uh, I think it was just Ballad of Buster Scruggs and. Uh, um, 
Yeah, I think that's it. Maybe I think actually no, I think they did uh, a segment with him once for that uh, anthology film back in 2006. Yeah, that's the the name of it. Yeah, because they did a segment. I think he shot that too, if I'm not mistaken. So okay, cool. Yeah, Um, yeah, really great cinematographer. Uh, I don't love all of the films that he shot. You know, for sure. Um, but, uh, oh, he did, uh, across the universe. I, I knew there was one that I was like, okay. I, this is a choice of the cinematography that I personally jive with. I mean, not a movie I love, but it looks very nice. Yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of describes how I feel about the tragedy of Macbeth. <laughs> sure. But, uh, okay. Will, what do you think of the tragedy of Macbeth? It sounds like you're about to go, you're about to gush over this thing. Uh, sure. Well, uh, before I forget, I want to clarify, I, I looked it up to be sure. Kenneth Broad didn't direct the Macbeth, um, adaptation he started he didn't direct it, it? I, no really uh, he, are you t- are you're talking about the 2013 one that he did for like national um what do you call it national theater uh um, unless he project re- unless he directed the like stage adaptation and um just not like the film version of it i, I might be conflating things then i guess oh, wait, because i know he actually, directed something was it a play actually, and not he, the movie? i guess he co-directed the stage production but i guess like the film version i went to mm. theaters for fathom events he didn't I don't know. It's confusing. Anyway, it's, possi- it's, it's possible that yeah. I'm conflating just because, I mean, it's Kenneth Branagh well, and to me, right. he did all the main experience. I mean, he did like Henry V and Hamlet and like much ado about nothing, a bunch of other yeah. um, Shakespeare adaptations. He is a Shakespeare dude. Huh. Um, so, yeah, just want to clarify that in case anyone is any like Shakespearean uh, um, thespian is, uh, you know, getting mad at us. But uh, to answer your initial question, as far as uh, my anticipation for Tragedy Macbeth, uh, I was very, very hyped for it because, uh, as many people probably know by now, I'm a huge fan of the Coen brothers. They are my second favorite filmmakers uh, behind Paul Thomas Anderson. So it's been yeah, a, what a couple of weeks this has been for yeah. you. A week, yeah, because I saw uh, Licorice Pizza last Monday and I saw this on Sunday. So it was quite a week, big week for me um did you see this in uh, imax or you see it in a standard if i could have seen it in imax i would have but i just saw it in theaters i saw it actually at a lovely little uh indie theater that i'd never been to before here and it was uh it was fun to see it with a bunch of uh old people that were really into the text you know no hmm. but no okay. uh straggler teenagers that you know aren't paying attention everyone was geared and locked into it um but as a you know also um by no means a shakespeare expert or a like super fan or anything but macbeth is my favorite of his texts um i think it's just you know a a a great piece of work i I think that's fair to say (laughs) Um, that's interesting because i think that describes a lot of the differences between you and me because i'm a hamlet guy through and through okay i'm not as familiar with hamlet to be honest um have you seen the lion king i mean sure i'm familiar familiar with with hamlet no, but I mean, I never studied uh, Hamlet. I got you. I, I, I studied Macbeth. Not even in school. I studied, yeah, you never got around to that one. Maybe, maybe okay. I just missed uh, that class. But uh, I did study Macbeth. I studied Romeo and Juliet, um, one or two others from the Shakespeare uh, archive. But um, yeah, I mean, I just was, it was, you know, a, a, a bunch of uh, things I love, a lot of great flavors coming together, for me at least. So, um, you know, but obviously as a, a fan of the brothers collectively, I was very curious to know, like, okay, now Joel's going to be officially on his own here. What exactly are we going to get? Um, and certainly I feel like this movie is a lot uh, more dry than their other films, which is saying something. I feel like there's a little bit more um, uh, of a kind of... Uh, 
almost like pseudo serious sort of tone here where it, it, it seems like they're almost afraid at times to tell jokes. It is a funny film in spurts, but I feel like compared to something like, like the big Lebowski or any number of their other films, it's, it, it's probably the most serious film they've, he has done since, um, no country for old men, which is also very, uh, not a very lighthearted film. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, I, I guess going into this film, I wasn't exactly sure what the tone was going to be, but I could just tell from the trailers and everything else that it was going to be very reverent, but also taking a sort of uh, both minimalist and maximalist approach, because obviously, like we said, like the text was being condensed into a 105 minute runtime, kind of stripping away some of the exteriors and focusing more directly on uh you know, our two Macbeths and their kind of fragile state of mind, but also like, you know, the sets are very minimalist, but like the use of shadowing, the coloring of it, obviously being black and white, there's a lot of stark visuals to it. And I, I think personally, it, it really works. It's not a film that I love as much as I love the previous collaborations between the Coen brothers, but at the same time, I think it's a really rock solid adaptation of the film. And I guess I'll hopefully explain more why, but I'm more curious to learn why you didn't like it. I can assume, but I don't want to know for sure. Well, Sharon, I do want to bounce off of what you said there. I think the reason the the cinematography works so well for me here and including the production design is because it's just so precise. I mean, there is like it's part of the story, like the, the way that like you have these empty rooms kind of matching like the empty souls of the people inside them. I mean, when you watch this movie, you feel something to that respect. So for me, if it all came down to that, like if it really was a matter of like how this film is presented, I'd be like, yeah, this is one of the best movies of the year. But I mean, I think as a lot of our listeners have probably learned about me at this point, I put a lot of weight into the emotional stakes of a story and, you know, the basic fundamentals of characterization and how do you how do you get invested in characters? And I've, I've kind of like looked into like some of the reviews of this and some of the people who haven't liked it, who are sort of uh, some people that, you know, not not even like critics, but just like audiences are like, honestly, like I wanted to like this, but. I had no idea what these people were saying, like they were confused uh, because of Shakespearean dialogue, which is very alienating to, you know, modern, you know, moviegoers. So if you haven't really studied Shakespeare, th- there can be that, a little bit of a, you know, a barrier to entry, right? You kind of you kind of have to like really pay attention to this movie. Uh, I've heard some people be like, well, you know, I, I didn't understand what people were saying. But that's fine. I, I could pick up on like the gist from context clues, which I think right. is valid. Uh, like, I don't think this is a complicated enough story to that, you know, where you, it's like, yeah, you kind of get what's going on just by like the, the movements and the expressions. And, you know, I certainly didn't understand everything people were saying. I was like, what, what are you talking about? I don't know. But to me, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's less of a problem of the what it's, it's more of the why that feels like it's missing for me in this movie. You. Like what, yeah. why does Macbeth want to be King? You know, I think, oh, like, okay. I you thought know, you meant like why Joe uh, Joe Cohen wanted to tell this story. I thought that's what you were leading. Well, I up think to. that's pretty obvious. I, I think that Joe Cohen like loves the the production right. of it. I think that he loves yeah. the idea of just like taking this tragedy and dialing it up to twenty. Right. But when it comes to the character of Macbeth, I just don't think he, there's as much work being put into what makes this a compelling tragic figure. Because I think that when I'm watching Denzel Washington deliver this performance, I really don't get a sense of like. Why does he, why does he want power? You know, and I, I think it made way more sense in Shakespeare's time, this story, because back then, of course, people wanted the power of being a king. 
You know, it's this, they, they live in a world that's hierarchical. And at that time it was subversive to be like, no, 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 the monarchy is terrible. Like if you, you know, to get there, you have to do things that rob your soul. And I think that this movie just doesn't quite deliver that message as well. Like I just did not get that from this movie of like, you know, the, the tragedy of royalty. If anything, it was just like, royalty is great, but you got to get it the right way, I guess is what this film is kind of going after. And so I, I just think that it's, it's not just the dialogue that's kind of alienating. I think it's like this film This film is kind of taking the most archaic aspects of the story and just not updating them in a way that's societally, you know, relevant to people watching this. And so you can kind of watch this as a curiosity. I don't think that this is a, you know, a worthless film or anything like that. But I, I do think that it's it's hard to just sort of connect to what's happening and to sort of like really land your heart with this movie, uh, at least for me. I mean, it sounds like other people are able to do that, I guess. I, I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know if it's are people really having a heart with this story or are they just kind of like they're, they're loving the trappings and they're just sort of like, yeah, you know, like, uh, yeah, sure. The story's not, you know, my favorite aspect, but all this other stuff is so great. Who cares? Um, well, I mean, I have heard people say that this, that they find it to be a little bit too austere, I guess. Like, it's a little bit too beholden to, like you were saying, like, the the properness of the text that it, it, it can almost feel a little bit stuffy, I guess. Which I don't fully agree with, but I can at least understand that. Like, you know, it's, it's especially for people our age, I feel like it's kind of a hard sell to be like, it's Shakespeare, Again, you know, but I guess for me, what I find appealing about Joel Cohen's adaptation is that it, it, it does feel a little bit more elemental, I guess, like you're saying, like it, it does feel kind of like you're you're kind of going back to the basics almost like there's a starkness to just how preserved uh, and kind of strict back it is in terms of the performances and the characterizations uh, in contrast with some of the more kind of uh, uh, looming sets and kind of the great shadowing and the lighting and the, as we mentioned, the cinematography from uh, Bruno Dumoulin. But um, what I also really like about this film is that it, it kind of feels like um, it's grabbing from several other adaptations that we've gotten. We get like kind of like the mythicism of Throne of Blood, but we also kind of get that expressionist style that we get from um, Orson Welles' previous adaptation. And we also are getting kind of the more kind of like uh, looming foreboding that we see in some of the more like, like something we get from Polanski's adaptation. And I, I mean, I'm nobody by no means an expert in all these film adaptations, but it does kind of feel like we are getting like kind of like the old fashioned filmmaking techniques from their style, but we're also kind of getting like this new fresh coat of paint from like the stylistic choices that we get from your typical a 24 film. And I can see those being off putting to some people, but I thought the balance of those two things made it pretty interesting. Uh, uh, as far as, I guess, like what you're trying to say, like justifying itself by doing this adaptation again or exploring this text once more. I have to be honest. I, I didn't walk away from this movie being like, yeah, this had to have been this is a 24. You know, I could see Joel Cohen's fingerprints on this, but I don't know. To me, when I think of a 24 movies, I think of movies with so much heart and soul that it's undeniable. I think of Last Black Man in San Francisco and an eighth grade and, you know, all, all these films that just have like just their heart on their sleeves, you know, films that came out this year, like, come on, come on, you know, also in black and white. But, you know, I, I, when I'm looking at Shakespearean adaptations in general, I think the ones that I personally like the most are ones that, that like I said before, they, they update the play, knowing that audiences, you know, 
it's it's going to be too jarring if you, if you do it if you if you don't take the contemporary audience in mind. I think one of my like we already mentioned Lady Macbeth, which I think is brilliant about this. Um, I know Midsummer is not a Shakespearean retelling, but I just thought of another A twenty four movie that again like is able to have that kind of bleak tragedy but it does it in such an interesting way it does it in such a surprising way that you're watching the whole movie and it's like all this you know all the horrific stuff is happening in broad daylight like i don't know stuff like that it, that's what makes me stand up and pay attention and at no point in this movie was like wow you know i never i've never even like contextualized anything like this before but uh even in other like I, okay much ado about nothing 2012 wonderful black and white film uh, i know J- joss oh, see, that's, and all that stuff but you know i like that movie fine but i feel like that the issues that you're presenting i felt more with that film what do you mean the the Josh Whedon one you're talking about? I see. No, nah, I, I think that that the movie that movie's magic. I, I think mm. the 2012 right. one. See, I, I don't really it, remember that one that well. I just kind of like okay, that was that was nifty. I guess like it's cool. Well, it that, has the dialogue right, but it's also yeah, contemporary, but, and I think that's what makes it so fun. Like I don't know, it, it hmm. it's doing something. It, it, it's hard to it's hard to explain. I get what you're saying. Yeah, I just I guess for me when I I don't really look back on that movie that much because I just see it as kind of like it's nifty that they were able to pull that off. Like while he's finishing up Avengers and he like got his friends and they did it. For I think like, Nifty is underselling it. Ah, I don't know. I feel like Nifty is pretty fitting. Like, I don't, I don't know. I just don't remember like being like, oh, this is like the ultimate telling of this text. You know? It sounds like, like you think of, I'm making much yeah. ado about nothing. I guess, but I mean, for me though, it it feels like this movie is kind of going like w- like when you're asking like it feels cold and it, it feels like it's going for that. I, I feel like for one, that's sort of the point, which I can you know if you, that's not your thing, I can respect that. But I also kind of like that this is kind of going for like a hammer horror approach to it. Like it, it kind of feels like we're kind of getting this like uh very heightened stylized telling that obviously we've seen other stylized versions of this text but it does feel like it's borrowing a lot of like the things that we've seen i know like they've been doing this production of the stage show of late i think like shorshe ronan uh is doing in london right now so i don't know if it's just like an outright new version of Macbeth that he is adapting or if they're uh just taking it from this film but it does seem like there is like i said like this kind of like cold like you say like kind of like um like elemental aspect to it but it's bringing out the brutality of the text like it, it almost makes the the text feel a little bit more uh cutting because of the futility of it like the idea that like what the the Macbeths are really pursuing is ultimately fairly meaningless and short-sighted because like even though they they'll extend in power it's not really what Macbeth would ultimately want and like he's just you know ruining his life which is very true I feel like to most Coen Brothers films like the idea that like uh, a great deal of these Coen Brothers films are just like these like dumb idiots who are just like getting in over their head by doing you know uh, poor attempts at criminality it's almost like kind of doing that and then like recognizing that like Shakespeare in a way is sort of like a tale like that almost except obviously these See, characters yeah. are a lot smarter than your average Coen Brothers uh, protagonist here, here, here's the thing with that though those movies tend to have a really good juxtaposition and they, they are so much better at getting me to root for those bumbling criminal characters Characters, like you're saying. And I think part of that is because in Fargo, you have Francis McDormand. In this movie, what do we have? Like, we just have a lot of characters I don't care about and I don't like. Like, Corey Hawkins is playing this guy, McDuff, right? And I just think that, like, his whole role in the story is just, like, very uninteresting to the point when there are, like, certain fights in this movie. I don't feel anything. Like, there is one fight in this movie that I think oh, is I, mean, I disagree. Okay, oh, yeah, you're I, talking I, about I, the, the ending fight is what I'm assuming you're the referring to. The penultimate fight. 
where, you know, Macbeth is fighting somebody unarmed. That was the only time in this movie where I felt something, where I was kind of like, wow, I actually now am starting to feel what the character is feeling. Because before that, I'm not. And I think that, like, it's great for a movie to be cold. I like cold movies, but make them chilly. But in order for me to enjoy a movie like that, I still need to want something for the character. In this movie, I just don't have that at all. And I think that has been an issue in some other Coen Brothers films. I think that they haven't always nailed, you know, that likability in their approach to how a character comes across. And like, you know, we we were just talking about Red Rocket, which is a good example of like, that is not a character you really root for, but it is a character that you're with and you're able to sort of see like everything kind of fall apart from him in a compelling way. In this movie, yeah, it's just, I see everything falling apart and I just, I, I like, what is there for me to, to, to grab onto? Is it the relationship with his wife? I think that he and Francis McDormand, I, I just, I don't know, like whenever they were talking to each other, I didn't buy it. I didn't buy Francis McDormand in this movie in I general. I guess that's where Okay, I, I really like France McDormand. I did but, not like her in right. this movie. I thought okay. I thought that she was very, very just. I just didn't think she did did the part very well. I, okay. I don't know. Hmm. I have heard people complain about her performance, but I don't. I thought. I mean, one of the things I find most fascinating about this adaptation is that uh, obviously, like Denzel Washington and France McDormand are a little bit older than your typical. Um, actors playing this part you like normally get somebody in like kind of like their 30s or maybe like their 40s now we're getting people i, I believe both denzel washington and france mcdormand are probably like what 50s or 60s at this point yeah i mean uh, that is another thing too it's like if you're going to have older characters in this role you need to do something to the story again because like that's why i think the original I, play is like oh you know like it's about the the youth and the ambition of like people who are young and want it all too quickly. But then when you do that with somebody in their fifties, you kind of have to update and be like, okay, maybe it's more of like a, this is your last chance. This is a, a story of desperation. Right. I just I didn't think, think that is. came across. Okay. And then I guess that's where we ultimately disagree. I think the fact they're older kind of showcases that futility, like the idea that like what they're pursuing here is just like not really in their best interest. Like they're, they're not really thinking through what they're ultimately doing here, which feels very Cohen S to me. Like the idea that these like kind of salt in their ways, uh, characters are, you know, getting in over their heads by trying to do something that they think will pursue their best interest, but ultimately just damns them, which is very, I think very true to, uh, my favorite Cohen brothers films. But I get like what you're saying. I feel like there is something to their previous or, or the collaborations I did with his brother, with Ethan, where like there is kind of like those undercoming moments of uh, unsuspecting sweetness or like there is a there's some more humanity in place where it, it kind of balances out the coldness or it makes them stand out a little bit more. If I had one major complaint about the film, it does feel like each scene could use maybe like a little bit more tonal distinction. The fact that each scene kind of feels a piece with each other, I, I can see people respecting that, but it does make the scenes, I guess, stand out a little bit less for me, especially in the middle, because like they all kind of have the same foreboding tone throughout but at the same time like i said it it, it feels like that kind of hammer horror movie approach that he's going for where there is like these like looming shadows and like this this grave sense that uh you know Macbeth is just going to you know ultimately damn himself because he just can't really uh listen to his best instincts and he you know pursues this for the wrong reasons because his wife basically tells him to and so, um, yeah also, all that yeah. all that and the age thing i think are creative but also to me, in my opinion, overly charitable interpretations where like, I don't see that in the text. Now that said, I I have only seen it once. You've only seen it once. Who knows? Like it it could be one of those things where we could watch it and be like, yeah, you know what? Well, you had a point here, John, you had a point. Who knows? I I can't be closed minded. It's not a film. I mean, I think I've been thinking about it since I've seen it and it's not a film that while I respect it a lot, I don't love it as much as I love 
a lot of their past films. Like I think the Coen brothers are, you know, toe for toe, like some of our, you know, most consistently great filmmakers. Obviously they have a couple clunkers, but like for the most part, their films I agree, are not yeah. only really good, but they get better the more you watch them. Like mm-hmm. you appreciate more, there's more to appreciate with time with them. And I don't know if that's going to be the case here. I mean, obviously I've only just seen it the one time. So it's going to be one of those things where it's like, maybe I'll look back on this film a few years later and be like, Oh, I totally stole a little bit too much. Like maybe I just like kind of let my, uh, my, uh, appreciation for this filmmaker kind of overshadows some of the flaws that it has. But I mean, I think it, it does really work on its own terms. Like I said, I don't think it's like whether it's not like a masterpiece or anything like that. I don't think, but See, I, I people do are think calling it, it a masterpiece and I'm just sort of being like, uh, okay, sure. But I, I do. I mean, I, I just, I think I just really appreciate how it can be so grand, but also have that characteristic understatement of, you know, a lot of the great Coen brothers performances. I think that's why I really admire this. That like, when we get the like kind of classic Denzel Washington shouting moments, as you would expect from him playing Macbeth, they feel more earned to me because he underplayed it throughout so much of the film. And I feel like that's something that's very typical of Joe Cohen and I guess also Ethan Cohen when they work together. Uh, I don't know. Just a lot of stuff here I like a lot. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll say I just want to make sure I've, people manage their expectations, you know, and like I, hopefully this one exceeds them for them. But yeah, I mean, when I'm looking at my favorite Cohen Brothers movies and, and really the movies that have been the most successful for them in the long term i'm thinking of fargo of course and big lebowski like really pop culturally relevant movies i think um i think no country for old men kind of represents like one of their their highs like one of their highest highs i know also there is also true grit it's great film. and i i always I like, like hail caesar i i really hold in high esteem i think that's a movie that just did not get its due yeah, I need to revisit that. I liked I didn't love it compared to some other Cone. Same with True Grit. But, uh, I mean, for me, I like, inside Lewin Davis. I first watch. Yeah, Hail Caesar was my kind of thing. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, for me, of this past decade, um, Inside Lewin Davis, I think, is magnificent. I really like that movie a lot. Uh, going back a little bit further, I think, uh, like you said, No Country for Old Men. A Serious Man, I think, is maybe in their top five best films ever. I, I could see that, yeah. Very great. Uh, uh, that's uh, 2009, I want to say. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I think I would love to watch A Serious Man and then follow it up with Tragic Macbeth. I think they'd be very interesting yeah. companion pieces. But yeah, um, and a wonderful yeah. Michael Stuhlbarg film, uh, I want to say. Oh, too. yeah, he's great in it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, one of our most saying, underutilized yeah. actors, in my opinion. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, uh, uh, when I think back on like, there are moments where I, I kind of feel like uh, Joel Cohen, like he had opportunities to be a little bit funnier with this film. And I think it does have a kind of really dry sense of humor. But for the most part, it is playing it pretty serious. But there are moments like with Stephen Root's character where it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, here's what this is like kind of like what I expected when I hear like the Coen brothers are doing um, a Shakespeare adaptation. And then he also only has like that one scene. And it's like, oh, that's a shame. Like they had the opportunity to kind of push him a little bit more in the film. And I think that might have uh, leveled out some of your complaints. See, but no, I don't know because I, I think I liked this movie best when it didn't feel like a Coen brothers movie. When I thought that it was starting to settle more into like a new kind of. Uh, an approach for this filmmaker like this is what joel can do on his own and i kind of actually liked that the sort of like the operatic style like my favorite stuff in this movie are some of the scenes just being How, like, like mesmerizing like yeah. when the throne room turns yeah. into a forest when like a, a pool of water starts to bubble up yeah from, that's great like stuff like that i'm just like that's not typical coen brothers to me i mean not something i initially think of and that was the stuff that i was most interested in but yeah. uh yeah, in terms of like their, you know, the signature styles, like I wasn't missing that in this movie personally. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I did like Harry Milling in this, by the way. Harry Milling, uh, glad to see him come back after Scruggs, uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and also uh, Ralph Innocent. I was delighted by in this. Yeah, I mean, the cast, I mean, all together. I mean, I think the MVP is probably Catherine Hunter, who plays our three witches. Absolutely. Uh, she's fantastic in this. She's so good. I think I Hawkins, think it's almost uh, yeah. to the detriment of Frances McDormand. I think she embodies that character so well for me that when I see Frances McDormand like wandering the castle, just kind of with the same expression on her face the whole time, I'm just like, man, Catherine Hunter is outclassing you right now. Sure. Where'd you, uh, you haven't talked about how you feel about Denzel Washington. I was curious where you, uh, I think Denzel's stand. good, but not great in this. I think that okay. the, the range just isn't there. I think he's playing it on like one or two notes and I don't think it's his fault. I just think that he's not given much range to really work with. I think that he's always a bit on the same note. And I think that, but like I said before, that one scene is like where I think he comes out as like the, just that brooding boiling like anger underneath is finally connecting with the actual performance in that unarmed fight but i just i just didn't catch that anywhere else in this movie i just felt like he was way too reactive I mean, Macbeth has always got to be a little bit reactive of a character honestly sure. but in this movie i think that yeah they just didn't quite get that balance right for me okay uh yeah i mean i don't know i i enjoy his performance a good bit um the other thing i just want to talk about before i forget is i really like the sound design in this movie yeah just like the way that I mean, it's obviously filmed on a soundstage, but just the way that it kind of captures that like play feel where there's like kind of like the dripping water and like this kind of like slamming in the background. And you just like kind of like it's really effective, but also fairly understated as far as like getting you into the troubled mindset of our title character. So, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff I hear I like. I mean, do I think it all comes together as well as some of their past films? Not exactly, but I, I also think it's a little bit better than you giving it credit, ultimately. Well, uh, I'll finish out with saying I, I do think the costumes are good in this, um, and yeah. I do think uh, Carter Burwell's score is a oh, solid yeah, yeah. and a longtime Coen Brothers collaborator. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, I have nothing nothing major to complain about at all when it comes to the aesthetics and how this movie comes across. I just, like yeah. I said before, like I hope people manage their expectations. I think for most people, this is the kind of movie, at the very least, you're going to get something very sumptuous. But I just hope people aren't going in expecting like a grand slam of a movie because it might not be that for you. I, I, hopefully it will because that's obviously preferable. But yeah, just uh, definitely was far from that for me. Um, but okay, that's uh, Tragedy Macbeth. I guess we can play... The Rotten Tomatoes game. Will Ashton, 164 film critics have logged a review for the tragedy of Macbeth on Rotten Tomatoes. What do you think the Rotten Tomatoes score is at this point? Um, 91%? Yeah, kind of close. 94%. Okay. I mean, I feel like we knew it was going to be the 90s. I mean, that's that. That's what this kind of movie is. Sure. Yeah, 94. Um, what about the audience score? We have 100 plus ratings counted. Uh, 70, 75%. 75% is your guess. A bit off. It's 86%. Okay. So, yeah, so far, the audiences who are seeking this out are being like, yeah, we're, we're with Will. We're with Will on this one, um, which that's fine. But uh, yeah, so it can't, it started its limited release on Christmas Day. Like I mentioned before, it's going to be streaming on January 14th. Uh, we don't have a cinema score, uh, I think, because I don't think um, this isn't like a wide release, right? So uh, that's not yeah, too big I mean of a surprise. I don't know if we did we mention that's going to be on Apple TV Plus later this month. Yeah, I just said that uh, January fourteenth. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. So that that'll do it for the tragedy of Macbeth. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, if you are a cinemaholic, I mean, check this out. This is one of the must watches if you are a film lover. Uh, oh, but if yeah. you're a little bit more careful about what you want to watch, uh, you may want to may want to hesitate a little bit just in case. I mean, hey, look. I mean, with Omicron 
Kron, I I don't want to uh, say like you have to go to theaters, all this stuff like that. But if you're gonna if you're going to theaters anyway, it's between this and the King's Man. Yeah, I'd see this one. That's why hey, you see. didn't see King's Man, so you can't even. That's true. Uh, <laughs> well, I've heard it's not very good, but <laughs> I don't know not. for sure. That's fair. Yeah. yeah, King's Man. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of myself. So, all right, let's move on to our next film here, Sing Two. So we already got the first Sing. Uh, which is an Illumination film, which I it's hard for me to remember. Like, is it Illumination? Is it DreamWorks? I don't know. But no, this is Illumination. And uh, what are you, you talking? See, this is this is like <laughs> very Illumination. I guess uh, in ways both bad and good. To be fair, I feel like both DreamWorks and Illumination over the last few years have been sort of like meeting closer to the middle with their movies, and they're becoming a little bit less indistinguishable than they used to be. That's just my opinion. But uh, I don't know. I feel like DreamWorks has been. To their credit, I feel like they've been kind of trying to push away from that stigma that they have, where it's like, oh, we're like the B grade team. Like they're they're they, you know they're doing like some How to Train Your Dragons. They're doing a little bit more. To uh, like, I think that era is long past. They're now in the like, Wish Dragon kind of. Oh, oh I guess it's yeah, Sony, huh? Well, Boss Baby, I guess it's a big one they have. There now, we right? go, Boss Baby. That's DreamWorks. Uh, yeah, they're kind of in a forgettable age at this moment. Though I saw a trailer for one they have coming up called. The bad, the bad guys. guys that and actually looks pretty uh interesting to me i mean i didn't i didn't know anything about it going into it but i didn't realize the style was going to be more like spider-verse than i was anticipating i thought it was just going to be like a generic anime film but it actually looks like it's like mixing it's 2d idea. and yeah, 3d it, it looks like it has like a, an interesting visual aesthetic which is uh definitely step one yeah you know what i mean not saying it not saying it looks good just like oh visually this is, looks much more interesting than i anticipated right so, yeah. we'll, we'll yeah. see if it's good like literally uh when we do but in, in terms of movies that i i think it look good enough. That's how I feel about the first thing. Like, I, I don't think this the first thing is like a a bad movie or anything like that. I think you it's, liked it better than I did for sure. It's a movie it's a that sweet, I didn't watch like when it first came out. Yeah. I, it took me a minute to get to it. It's a sweet little movie that I think is <sighs> kind of in that B minus C plus area where it's uh, it's not quite great. And I think it's not even particularly good, but it has such a pure heart. And I think for Illumination, that is uh, pretty rare because I feel like a lot of their other films feel very capitalistic and it feels like they're kind of chasing the trends. Yeah, they're trying to be movies. the new Looney Tunes. They're, they're trying to create right. these like, you know, vignettes of I, like slapstick cartoonish comedy and stringing them together in feature length movies yeah. to varying success. I think like you, you have movies like I, Minions, which makes like billions of dollars, right? But then right. other times, not so much. I mean, Secret Life of Pets 2 was uh, the follow-up to, I know Secret Life of Pets was like, people really liked that movie, right? That was, uh, I think, same year mm-hmm. as Sing, or like right, at, or yes. right before. And uh, the yeah. sequel? I just, yeah. yeah, whatever. Uh, I think the biggest thorn in Sing's side is that it's ultimately just a little too derivative for its own good. Uh, and I think it's never quite as clever or as uh, unique as it should be to really stand out. But at the same time, I think it's more sincere than uh, critics and maybe some audiences give it credit. Uh, you know, whether or not it's being sincere is whatever to me. Like in this case, I don't really care. It's like, it can be sincere. That's fine. I, I'm You're fine here to that. hear folks. But John doesn't <laughs> care about your sincerity. <laughs> I don't care about the sincerity of an illumination film. I'll, I'll put it that sure. way because you know, yeah. it, it, it's like, that's nice. But like, what about the movie itself? I don't know. But well, in terms of the first yeah. thing, I think it's very watchable, you Absolutely. know, decent family film. I, you know, the premise is some fun. cringy humor, some cringy bits, but otherwise pretty watchable, pretty sweet. 
Yeah. It's it's kind of got the same, it, it, not the same, but it, it, it's got a similar setup to like Zootopia. Okay. Like we got a world full of talking animals, but whereas Zootopia was a very like, I mean, it's very Disney, you know, they, they spent a ton of time like building that world, making it feel like this is what a world built by animals would actually be. Yeah. This is like, you could, you could transpose these characters with humans and it wouldn't be that different. And that's kind of the point. It's just yeah. sort of like, it's a gimmick to sort of make think, it more cartoonish yeah. and silly. I mean, yeah, because, like, the first movie, like, there's clearly some thought point to, like, obviously, like, the, the elephant is, like, shy, but she's, like, big. So there's, like, the contradiction there. Like, they have Seth MacFarlane's kind of, like, wise, cracking guy, but he's, like, the little mouse. And obviously, like, same. He's bizarrely with, uh, missing from this movie. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. But, um, but you know, uh, like, obviously, like, it, it's very literal, but, like, the koala, Matthew McConaughey's character is, like, the little guy who's, like, dreaming big and all that. And it's, like, you know, they play with, like, size a lot and stuff like that, but they don't, like, they don't really play up with the animal aspects of it that much weirdly right well i'm talking especially about the setting you know zootopia is a timeless setting you can watch that movie in 10 years and not even know it was made in 2016 whereas sing you're going to be like oh yeah that was made you know because it's so instantly dated by how contemporary it is not that that's a bad thing i think that you know i think the movie yeah it's it's a perfectly Uh, uh you know respectable approach you want to make a contemporary talking animal movie just do it sure but I'm just saying that is a limitation that comes with the I, territory. I think you're maybe a little bit more favorable on Zootopia than I am, but I get your point. Like, I think there's a lot more thought and thematic depth to Zootopia that's just clearly absent from Sing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the biggest Zootopia fan. I know some people rave about that movie. And, and I remember that was the year that I was like, no, 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 Moana. Like, that is that is the Disney film that really, like, kicks but uh, that, people were like, no, 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 agree. Zootopia is about yeah. something. And I'm like, is it? <laughs> okay. Sure. Uh, I just think it's kind of a, uh, it's a bit of a, conflu- a confused metaphor, but I appreciate what it's going for. And the fact that Same. Disney did that. Uh, I just think I, I don't the think world really building works, of it is like yeah, the coolest yeah. thing about it. Right. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. That's all I'm saying. But uh, yeah, Sing 2 is the the sequel, which I got to be honest. I was like, uh, what do you do for the sequel? You know, like after the first one, it's like it's basically like a an American Idol voice kind of like singing competition story about, you know, animal characters who aren't, you know, your standard, your, your stereotypical sort of like performers finding that sort of fame and success. And then going into this movie singing too, I was like, well, how do you do that in 2021 when we're in, we're firmly in the TikTok era? Like Vine was around back in 2016, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really considered a place where people like the everyday person go onto an app and like perform and like do all these things and get discovered. We had things like YouTube, but it, even then it was still kind of like rarefied. Like we had Bo Burnham and Justin Bieber, I guess, but we just, we didn't have that sort of like influencer culture where somebody could come from nothing and suddenly become like a superstar. Now we have like Billie Eilish, you know what I'm saying? And, and even then people are like, well, you know, a lot of that stuff is gamified, you know, like the, if you if you really look into like TikTok influencers, like a lot of them, it's like planned for them to become famous, whatever. Uh, I'm not here to debate that. But I will say with Sing 2, it does go into a, a bit of an interesting direction. So, you know, we meet, we find out, you know, Buster Moon, who's once again voiced by Matthew McConaughey. Things are going great with the new theater and everything. But, yeah, they have they have issues like impressing a talent scout, uh, kind of saying like, OK, you want to move to the next level, but you, you don't have what it takes. And so the singers from the first film are like, well, we got to we got to do something. We got to we got to do a Hail Mary, kind of go for broke. They go to this place called Red Shore City which is kind of like a Las Vegas sort of like hybrid with LA, but mainly Las Vegas where they're going to try to like muscle their way 
into, you know, the entertainment biz, like really like create something amazing. And it's not a competition this time. They're going to put on a big performance, like play kind of thing. You kind of were telling me you think that it's like a commentary on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Is that right? Well, yeah, you're stealing my thunder a little bit. I'm sorry. Yeah, (laughs) I have no idea for sure if that's the case. But the idea that like a kind of, uh, you know, uh, small town theater guy hits it big, gets a chance to make a big sci-fi blockbuster. I look at Garth Jennings filmography, a music video director, TV director that hits it big by getting the chance to direct Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I have no idea, to be clear, if that has any connection to this movie or if it's autobiographical in any sense. I just think it's an interesting parallel. That's my that's okay. my only point with that. Yeah. My yeah. review of Sing 2 is basically the same as the first movie. Perfectly watchable. There's nothing really offensive about this movie. I think that it's going to, you know, age like milk, you know, for a lot of people. They're going to watch it and be like, yeah, that was a nice time. It's kind of like your, your typical MCU movie in that respect. Like, it's going to kind of fleet away. Uh, pretty quickly, I think. Uh, I do appreciate the vocal performances in here. This is one of those few animated movies from like Illumination, the, where I actually think that they they put a lot of thought into who voices who, which celebrities voice who. I think that Reese Witherspoon is is one of my favorite things about both of these movies. She she voices Rosita, the uh, the kind of like housewife pig who wants to you know strive for more. Uh, I think Scarlett Johansson is not my favorite kind of performance in these movies, but in this one, I think that. She made a bit more of an impression, uh, mainly because she gets to interact more with uh, a new character voiced by Nick Offerman, who I think is really good in this, actually. Like, I, I was actually kind of quite taken a bit uh, by his character. And I was like, oh, th- this is actually an angle to this sort of story I wasn't expecting. And I'm kind of liking um, was it. Nick Offerman was in the first one. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not thinking of Nick Offerman. I'm thinking of Bono. <laughs> Oh, the okay. uh, Clay Calloway character. Sorry, sorry. I, not Nick Offerman. Not, Nick Offerman is Rosita's husband. It's because I was right. just talking about Rosita. <laughs> yeah, I was, um, I was sorry, genuinely sorry. confused because like, yeah, I, I, unless you just forgot, he, he is in the first one very briefly, but he is. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, Bono is who, <laughs> who I meant to say there, uh, who voices this kind of like this lion character who is sort of like past his prime and dealing with a tragedy. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're clearly trying to go for something a bit more emotional here. Maybe this is a hot take. I'm, I, I haven't talked about this with you, so I don't know. I think Bono is like actually pretty good in this. Like That's I was what not I'm expecting saying. it. That's yeah, what I'm saying like, right now. I was surprised. I was just like, okay, yeah. you know, like they hired Bono because he's a name or whatever, but he gives like maybe the best performance in the film. <laughs> That's what <laughs> like, I'm saying. It's just, it's just yeah. like kind of surprising. I'm like, oh, right, wow, exactly. This, yeah, this is like, like kind of this has something I, to it. Because I heard him like you know like Bono like Bono's Bono whatever. But like I heard it's like oh I spent time studying lions and all this like whatever. You're playing a lion and sing to like whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like he gives like this like emotionally cathartic performance. And it's like oh. How, how about that? You know, good for yeah, him. Yeah, Did a nice job. Yeah. Uh, I think Halsey is kind of good in this. Uh, she plays a new character named Portia, who's the the daughter of the kind of the main antagonist of this movie, who's like the the wolf character guy, voice, uh, voiced by Bobby Cannavale, who, who also does well. I just think everybody in this is good. Nick Kroll is yeah. still as good as ever as Gunter. I think that uh, Taron Egerton, he, he doesn't do as much in this movie as Johnny, um, but I still think. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. He's all right uh, as well. Yeah, he's fine. This he, he, It does kind of feel like, well, we can't get rid of him, but we don't really yeah. have anything to do with him this time. His we'll arc kind of is over. Like, yeah. yeah. Right. Not over, but it's just like the most interesting aspect of it is kind of past. Right. Um, yeah. It's very sequely like, it's like kind of like when you're in like season three of a show and it's just like, well, we kind of did everything we wanted to do with you in seasons one and two. Yeah, so, they're still uh, there, but they're not quite, right. you know, they're contributing, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, and then uh, I, my favorite character, though, voiced by Garth Jennings, is, of course, Miss Crawley. Miss Crawley gets all the best laughs. Uh, clearly the most inspired Band character. Favorite. This this movie's Edna Mode, let's just say it. Yeah, um, probably highly the movie is her rocking out to uh Mode down <laughs> yeah, yeah great scene uh <laughs> very good very good uh when she gets she gets a, a chance to sort of be the director and is bossing people around i'm just like yeah this is this is the wavelength i want this movie to be oh, at yeah. right now. No, I, I thought that was a good bit because like obviously like the joke you're thinking of is just like oh like she's gonna be clumsy and like let this whole production go but like or go the crap i'm sorry uh but yeah it's obviously like she like becomes like a dictator sense <laughs> it's, it's I, I think it's a good yeah, joke. yeah it's good it's good yeah. not every like i said before not every vocal performance is quite there for me i think that pharrell is in this movie which i would never would have guessed that was pharrell until was, the credits came up who was he i saw him exactly in the credits. right yeah, yeah. who was he who did he, he play he, he plays the elephant who sells ice cream oh and that's just like you're gonna get pharrell for that role does he has even been, say uh, has there been any discourse about that relationship uh no i don't think so why okay no i just that's a joke uh, like, Tori kelly dis- uh yeah. voices the character right yeah. uh, of course yeah uh, or reprises the character and hey Tori kelly that is another person who is who became a celebrity through youtube so there you go a little bit of f- full yeah. circle this there I, I know she was on american she, idol too but yeah she probably gives the best performance in the original film very uh, good in the original yeah, this one yeah. i think is okay like I, again i don't think the, the character i like i cared about the most in this movie was i the you know bono's lion and also reese witherspoon's rosita which i i, I don't know i was kind of clicking with those characters more i think matthew mcconaughey still kind of he's still doing the same thing here he's he's not he, he's not pushing pushing the he's envelope. doing what you want from him he's you know charismatic huckster you know trying yeah, yeah. to trying to get the show together the show must go on he's your kermit the frog figure you know yada 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 uh, we, uh, we, have Ch- we have chelsea peretti here as like kind of uh just like an assistant who's kind of like around delivering exposition i was like ah, i feel like that was overcast like yeah again not everything works letitia wright is, is playing this like Lynx who helps teach johnny how to dance it's just again like i'm just like okay i think it's like over overcasting eric andre uh, I do. I think he was okay. He he plays like this yak. Who yeah, he, he was does fine. The duet, you know. Uh, yeah, cool. He's in it. Right. Uh, to me, it's again. It's like it's like casting that is just for the trailer, so that you can be like boom, 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 like every celebrity's name. And you're just like right. Whoa, whoa, that. Whoa. That is a very uh, DreamWorks thing for sure. They they definitely took that from the DreamWorks handbook. But uh, yeah. Uh, overall, though, well, we we really set this up. I mean, Sing Two. Uh, what's your thought do you think this uh, one is uh any better any worse yeah uh speaking of setup i have to i guess acknowledge my uh history with um garth jennings uh it's very short um he's your father uh, no uh <laughs> i hope he's uh, if he ever gets a chance to listen I, I would like to thank him more officially but uh in 2015 um i went to new york city somewhat spontaneously uh and uh, i was there i was gonna move there um it didn't work out uh, i went to a couple of job interviews uh the second to last day i was there i was just kind of going around i didn't make any plans because i did this kind of spontaneously but i went by the cherry lane theater and i saw that they were playing uh oh hello uh the john mulaney nick kroll show nick kroll's also in this film and uh, as he is in the previous film uh you know being a 20 something young 20 something year old guy i was just like oh I'll just go up to the box office and get a ticket obviously that's not the way things work in new york city <laughs> especially for a hot show like oh hello uh as i go up to the box office uh, i ask for a ticket uh the lady's like oh i'm sorry we don't have tickets uh i see a hand come down a guy is like hey um my friend uh didn't 
come, but I have an extra ticket. Would you want it? I get to the front row uh, and I meet the guy and I found out that guy is Garth Jennings. No way. That's a true what? story. What? I never told you a story? No. You've always kept so, it close to your chest, waiting yeah. for just the right time. So <laughs> the he right time spontaneously gave too. me uh, front row tickets to Oh Hello Off-Broadway. So. I have always wondered, because you have those photos of like you yeah. and John Mulaney and Nick Kroll, and I always knew there was a story there, but I was like, Will's yeah. not going to give that up easy. So I, don't know, I think it's a pretty fun story. Um, Very cool. Anyway. Man. What year was this? That was 2015. Um, that was a year oh, before Sing One came out. Yeah. So all that to say, um, I'm very affectionate towards Garth Jennings. But he also made a lot of films I like a lot. I like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, I like same. Son of Rambo. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really like his music video work. He did uh, a couple music videos for R.E.M., my favorite band. He's done a few others. Um, I feel like he kind of gets overshadowed compared to some of his contemporaries like Spike uh, Jones. Mm-hmm. who kind of did some similar work uh or like well, hey, Michelle Spike jones has a uh, uncredited cameo in this movie or an uncredited voice role. Oh, yeah. i know they're friends um but yeah i mean i think he you know he hasn't had the same success as like a michelle gondry or a spike jones but i think he like i said before i think he's a pretty sincere filmmaker and i think he puts a lot of heart into his films i think even though they they only kind of live up to like b level i think he makes pretty nice well-meaning films and i think certainly the sing movies are no exception i i think similar to the first movie it's not super memorable and it doesn't really stand out compared to some of its uh um peers as far as like being you know like you said not quite as inventive as utopia not really having the same like thematic depth as something like a pixar film or even some of the better dreamworks films but i think compared to some of illuminations previous films i think there's more here the value it doesn't feel quite as cold or cynical i don't love the animation style of these films but i think uh this movie feels a lot more cinematic in its presentation it looks like garth jenning was a lot more interested in making this movie feel more epic and grand and i think he pulls it off pretty well i i think i, I also like the expanding scope i i like that we get more time with the characters i don't think it balances those characters always particularly well and i think it's maybe a little bit too long for its own yeah, good true, but true. i admire the ambition here and i don't think it's like an amazing movie or anything but um i i had a decent time with it but maybe i'm just a little biased i don't know I did it, it, things I liked. I liked that they take us to a new place, a new place that kind of feels big, and they put a lot of effort into making it feel big. I think that that whole aspect of like Red Shore City, I think it's a weird name, but in terms of just sort of being like, hey, like let's take these characters you already know and put them in a totally new environment. I think it's more successful too at like making this place feel very unique and and distinct because I think in the last movie, I, yeah, it, it was more of a forgettable thing, the location, uh, not so in this. And then also, uh, we were talking, we were chatting about this. I like that the villain gets to be a villain. Like the villain actually does despicable, horrible things. And it's not like glossed over or like wishy-washy or it's like, well, the villain has to be sympathetic or, you know, we can't have any villain because it's, you know, the, that's how movies are made these days. That has been something that's been not bugging me a ton, but bugging me a little bit with some animated movies that are just like, like we get it. Like you don't have to have a villain like toy story proved in 1995. You can have a great movie without like a very pronounced villain. You can have like an antagonist like Sid. Right. But you know, I think that these movies 
like animated movies in general are starting to overcorrect a little bit with that. Maybe like I think in Encanto at times people are kind of like, I kind of wish there was a villain mm-hmm. here. Maybe like, I don't know if I would agree with that myself, but like Luca is kind of like that. that. You just kind of have like yeah. a bully character. So it, it, it's a nice change of pace is all I'm saying is like, yeah, well, you know, it's... we still can have this movie where like you have a pretty terrible villain that you can mm-hmm. sort of, you know, follow the movie and just be like, man, he's bad. He's good at being bad. Right. Yeah, I get what you mean, because it's not like there's that scene where it's just like, you'll understand if we get a flashback as him as a little cub or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I couldn't be in the singing competition. They let him be on stage and he gets to sing a monologue and, or, a, right, right. A, you know, whatever. It, there's none of that. He's just a really bad guy and he attempts murder. So it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, that's... Uh, it's not like he's Scar, what's, what's but he's Garth, like... What's yeah. Garth Jennings trying to say here? I was wondering. I was like, hmm. Uh, what's... I, let's put it this way. I told you this already. I did look up to see if Scott Rudin was a producer on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So far as I know, he was involved. He's not, but no. I did wonder if Scott Rudin was the main influence for this character. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who don't know, Scott Rudin, you know, it's been an open secret for years, but even more so this year, people have come out and been like, he, he's a pretty you know, well-known Hollywood producer and people have been like, this guy's toxic. This guy is like, and uh, the, big the worst producer. of the worst. And what he, he did a lot of stage productions, like Broadway stuff as yes. well. He's like a, he's one of the few EGOTs. Right. And yeah, he, he's just sort of like somebody that you do not want to mess with in, in Hollywood. And so like, I think, uh, you certainly were not alone in thinking this got written when watching this movie, uh, to be totally clear. Although, I mean, the timing of it, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Like, was that really intentional? I kind of think it was, but, you know, I'm a bit of a conspiracy nut, you know me. But anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like it's like Carvey Weinstein. So, like, I mean... Right. Yeah, I don't know who else it could. I mean, there there are several, you know, maybe less notable, but uh, clearly influential producers that it could have been inspired from. I don't think it's any one person, but Scott Rudin was Certainly the one that came composite. to mind the most. Sure, yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah. Now we got it. We haven't talked about the music in a movie called Sing Two. <laughs> Let's talk about the music. I think the music is horrific. I think it's horrible. Like, if there's one thing about this movie I do not like, and I think is just painful most of the time not every single like of course not every single but i think by and large when people started singing or when a song started coming on i was like please god let it stop uh, i do not like how they do music and, and in both of these movies i think in the first movie is much better like i don't know there's a little bit more heart to it half the time and this i'm just like oh uh, like it's just cringe to me and, and i'm not saying it's gonna be cringe for everybody like i think like it's it's kind of got the big pop music appeal that some people be like i know that song uh for me it's just like oh not that song again um so i i gotta i gotta i gotta say it. I, uh, I, when it comes to the music i'm out like no thanks i didn't mind the music i, I think it's well produced i i think the music kind of saves both movies like because they just really? like i think wow i think both movies come together because of the music but at the same time, uh, to your credit, I think it's annoying that they don't have more original music. I like get just like it's just a lot of like karaoke, you know, top 40 songs or like, you know, like retro 80s, 90s favorites. Like, I think that's kind of annoying. Uh, and I, I oh, wish I like, just, it's, you know, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I just remembered Pharrell does sing in this movie. I was kind of saying that earlier. He I, yeah, I totally he does, forgot he, he sings. Yeah, 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 I forgot that it's because it's not really him, but it is. But anyway, sorry. Got I got you. Yeah. Um. Yeah, for me, it just especially because like they had the opportunity with this movie with the 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 fake show or not fake uh, in the movie, but like fake in real life uh, out of this world, um, whatever the the stage epic fantasy. Though, did you think a lot about the um, what was the name of the show in Tick Tick Boom? Like the show within the show. 
the show within the show. Uh, oh, Superbia. Yeah, Superbia. Did you kind of think this was no, like? No, I it, didn't really. Well, I think uh, I watched Tick Tick Boom after I saw Sing Two. I saw oh, Sing really? Two a while okay. ago. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, it, it just was like. I kind of feel like this show is if like Superbia actually got made. <laughs> That's kind of funny. I, I, yeah, yeah, I didn't make that uh, connection before. Mm. But uh, but no, I agree. Like because like you have like this opportunity with out of this world to be like here are some original songs that we can do, and you know we can sell a sell track this way or whatever. But they're all, all just original like covers. songs though, because they had other car- yeah, it was covers. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh I'm I saying. See what you're saying. My okay. point is that they only really do covers. I feel like they should be doing original songs. Well, isn't the Clay Callaway song an original? Uh, it's still I haven't found what I'm looking for. Is, oh uh, yeah, was that a YouTube song? song? Am, am I thinking of something else? I, I thought that I there no was idea. one song they did. They that, might. Okay. Um, I just feel like if that's the case, they're very few and far between that there are original songs in this movie. I I'm, um, I think there may only be like one or two because uh, I'm looking at the track list now. I'm like, oh yeah, these are all covers. <laughs> I just didn't know them as well. Um, but you know, hey, on that note, I do think that the I still haven't found what I'm looking for is a really good. Like that actually is really good. Like one of the few times in the movie where I was like, okay, I'm clicking with this thing. There are other songs, like there's an Ariana Grande song in this. I'm just like, okay, here we go. Uh, there was um, that uh, bad guy that they do in this, at, which I thought was like the one time I think I've heard that song in a movie where I'm like, this kind of fits. Like, I didn't hate oh, that. Did you not see Brightburn? No. Is uh, it? Brightburn uses it pretty funnily. Brightburn right? fun- uses bad yeah, Bright- guy? Yeah, it's the pretty funny. The movie about an evil Superman yeah. child? Okay, I got I don't no. want to give away in what context, but the way all they right. use it is pretty funny. Okay, yeah. all right. Well, um, yeah. And then uh, I- I'm kind of looking at the rest here. I-, I-, I kind of appreciated that Halsey did a cover of the Strut song, Could Have Been Me, and it's actually pretty, pretty like, rocking. I, I kind of was into that. Other than that, I did not like any of the other music, just me. I mean, I don't love the music. I, I, I guess I don't have your favorite soundtrack as, uh, of 2021. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, like, this is, you know, this is such an overstuffed year for musicals. And I guess sing two technically counts as one. But like, when I think back, I'm like, oh, this isn't really like a musical, even though they sing like every other five minutes because they're all covers. Like, it, and then, you know, it, it is a jukebox musical, which I'm not particularly fond of, but, um, you know, as a genre, but, uh, at the same time, yeah, I don't, I don't think any of the songs are done poorly or anything like that. Okay. Well, I think me. I've I think I've said my piece on saying too. I think this is a pretty straightforward. You know, it's uh, it's fun for the kids. You know, it's it's got its expected flaws, but I don't think it's egregiously bad anything, and it has a few nice surprises. So you know, sure, that's that what this, that's what this movie is. There you go. I, I said in my letterbox review, which actually kind of took off. <laughs> a lot of people seem to like it. Uh, I said, yeah, uh, I went back and I saw it got like. <laughs> Got a lot of likes. I was like, it wow. Did. Well, it's because I said this is the most James Corden movie that doesn't have James Corden in it. <laughs> That's a fair point. I stand by it's a good it. Good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess it's just kind of hard to be uh, hard not to be annoyed by Lumination as a company at this point. I'm kind of in the same camp with them as I am with Marvel, where it's like the movies themselves, I'm not particularly mad about because they're just like, they're kind of fodder for kids. Like, they're not they're not great but they're not terrible like the minion stuff i i like i hate the in principle i hate the minions as like same but they're harmless like, I, I, but like I when you see the minions like when i see them on screen i'm like yeah the minions are kind of cute like you know like they're like you know it's amusing but i hate that they're like a brand now like they are like 
the cornerstone of CGI animation as a genre right now. But like when I see the uh, when I see the minions on screen here, like I see the trailer for the new minions, or I see them in the um, Illumination logo, I'm like, yeah, minions are cute. And I feel like that's my relationship with every Illumination movie, except for like Despicable Me three and the Lorax and the Grinch. I'm just like most of the time, I'm just like yeah, this is cute, this is nice. I, I don't like that this is like the highest grossing animated film of 2021 but like i don't know if that's if it's that high but it's like up there right like it did better than ryan the last dragon and oh yeah it, and stuff it's, right? it's demolishing Encanto and ryan last which dragon. is kind of depressing didn't even get a theatrical release but this did okay sure i mean granted like yeah that's a big one like i i think this is actually i like this more than ryan the last dragon but like the fact that a movie like this is uh, doing better financially than an original uh, high concept animated film like that is pretty depressing. But at the same time, you know, when I watch it, I'm like, yeah, that's cute. That's nice. I, I'm not having a bad time watching this. And I feel like that was my relationship with the first movie. And that's my relationship with the the next one or this new one. But okay. at the same time, uh, a week from today, I'm not going to be thinking about this movie that much. I think there are only two Illumination movies I like like. You know, I don't love any of them. Uh, like, I, mean, I don't love any. Like, yeah, I think I mean, I, I, like yeah. you kind of remember. Like, I think Lorax is an abomination. Um, oh, yeah, I really, stinks. really hate that one. Um, the two that I like are probably the first two: Despicable Me and Hop. Like, you were I like pretty those fun. two movies. Oh, Hop! I forgot about Hop. Hop is pretty bad, in my opinion. You thought Hop was bad? Uh, I, yeah, thought, I thought Hop was bad. I had a good time with Hop. I was hopping and hopping and rolling I, with that one. I like the first. Well, first Despicable Me, I think, is fine, and I like the second one, kind of. Yeah, uh, it's, it's I think okay. the second one's probably the, I think the second one's probably the best of the three. Um, I, I disagree it, there, but I do like. I fell asleep during Despicable Me too. Uh, the Grinch, I okay. I almost liked. I'm I was so close to really liking that one. That but movie, God, like almost it was so close. The Grinch is just like, it, is it better than the Jim Carrey one? I guess, but like I constantly forget that that came out and that made like a billion dollars and it's just like i forget that was a thing <laughs> kind of funny in retrospect but yeah uh it's just you know what look if illumination is your thing if you're like look I, like I, I show up for illumination that's my studio power to you i think that it is a certain type of movie that i just i just don't click with myself but I, it's not that i don't think anybody uh, gets wrong to like these movies or to like the minions have fun you know, I think it is if there's one thing that they have managed to package pretty well is it's bringing joy to people. It's making people happy. Right. So I, I am glad that, that is the case. They literally have a song that got nominated for an Oscar yeah. called Happy, which is like, I feel the like that song, of our time. that song is like that just kind of describes Illumination as a brand, though. It's just like yeah, yeah. not a great song, but it's like catchy. If it's on the radio, I'll listen to it and I'll like bob my head. And I then afterwards, I'll, 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 I'll switch the station. But, uh, you know, you <laughs> that's, okay. that's just me. <laughs> But I feel like that's like, like this kind of sums up like every Illumination movie or like three out of four Illumination movies where it's just like they're not great. Like I, I won't really defend them artistically, but when I watch them, I'm like, yeah, this is fine. This I did is amusing see Pharrell perform live once and he did do Happy and I didn't leave. So I guess the, it been, the, that credit. I it would have been it. funny if you had that story, but it was just like and then he met he introduced me to Nick Kroll <laughs> and John Mulaney. <laughs> yeah, he was like, hey, I got an extra ticket for uh, Secret Life of Pets right, too. Right. Yeah. Uh, you want in on this? Uh, yeah. Um, okay, so that's thing two. Let's play the Rotten Tomatoes game. 95 reviews have been counted. Not a lot. Uh, this movie's been out for a week and, you know, critics are being like, I think we're good. <laughs> like, OK, but so, yeah, only 95 critics. So what, what do you think, though, the tomato meter? the critic score is at this point um this could be anywhere at this point i don't honestly know um 76 percent 
Yeah, I know you're going to have an instant reaction to this. I'm okay. going to preempt it. You're going to think is this it is like, very nice. 69%. It, uh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. I thought you were going to say like 96% or something. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, which it's not far off from the first saying. The first saying has a 71%. Now, what do you think the audience score is, though? Audience score, we got 2,500 plus verified ratings. Critics yeah. are being like, we, we, didn't, we didn't watch it. Audiences are being like, we saw it twice. Sure. Um, I will say, I think overall, I think Sing 2 is better than Sing 1. I don't know if I mentioned that in our actual review. But um, as far as the audience score, I think they're going to be high. I think they're going to be like 86%. 98%. Wow. I, they are high. That's that's pretty pretty wild. Uh, what about high. cinema score, though? Now we got to take the, the folks in oh, Vegas. <laughs> this one, I, I have to apologize because I actually know oh, this one. Oh, you know. You know it's because, an A+. And I didn't, I didn't cheat. Let me be clear. Yeah. I didn't cheat. This is all because of Instagram. Instagram. I went on Instagram and I was scrolling through the feeds. I got an ad for Sing 2 and it said A plus cinema score. And it's like I couldn't like swipe away to avoid it. So it's I, okay. I was spoiled. I understand. Oh, I understand. Well, when you have an A plus cinema score, you got to expect the advertising is going to catch up. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm just saying I knew that one in advance. I, that would have been a fun one to discover on the podcast. But unfortunately, I knew it. Yeah, it's the rare A plus. We were just talking on the show about like how rare that is, and uh, there, there have been a couple. Of, we got an A plus recently, right? With uh, was Spider Man No Way Home the A plus? We were just talking about. Uh, yes, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. So there you go. I uh, don't think it was Matrix Resurrections, yeah, even though uh, I like that film quite so a bit more. close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's finish out the show with our last film of the week, and that is The Lost Daughter. Now, The Lost Daughter. Uh, I kind of already mentioned this at the top of the show, saying how. It hit limited release earlier this month, and uh, I managed to catch a screener of it, uh, but it's still pretty fresh in my mind. But it's now streaming on Netflix, so a great time to talk about it, and more people can check it out. This is a new film written and directed for the first time by Maggie Gyllenhaal, her feature debut, and it's based on the novel by Elena Ferrante, who I actually have the novel over on my desk there. And uh, it's a bit of a, it's like a psychological drama about motherhood, kind of like an uncomfortable meditation on really like, what what the time the the types of mothers who are just like i don't want to be a mother but i am one uh, it's that kind of story it stars olivia coleman dakota johnson jesse buckley we say olivia coleman is really the main character here and we follow her while she's on a vacation in greece and she kind of like sees herself like her younger self through this other person there who's with their daughter who is just like having a really rough time and she's of course played by dakota johnson and we see flashbacks of olivia coleman's own life and how she handled you know the the perils of motherhood uh played by jesse buckley we also have paul mescal in this movie who uh, we recognize from normal people which is a very important series to to me in general Uh, also peter sarsgaard is in this and the wonderful ed harris who shows up in this and has a pretty sizable role uh, now, Olivia Coleman also serves as an executive producer. This is definitely an awards favorite uh, in some circles. Uh, it premiered, I think, at Venice. And I think it's one of Netflix's big plays for a couple of nominations, uh, at least in the acting and possibly adapted screenplay. And uh, we should, of course, say the screenplay. I did say it was written and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. She also did the screenplay. And I think first off the bat, I got to say Maggie Gyllenhaal. Wow. 
fantastic debut from her. Whether or not people like the film, and I think I don't think everybody's loving this movie, I think that this is a really strong start for her directing career and her screenplay career. I don't think she's getting enough credit for the, the screen, her screenwriting bona fides, although yeah. she did win an, a, an award already for Best Screenplay uh, through Venice, if I'm not mistaken. So mm-hmm. that said, Will Ashton, uh, Lost Daughter. What do you think of this movie? You like it? Good film. I'm going to say that off the top. Um, and I agree that because... I think this movie, it's not particularly flashy in terms of its visuals. I think it's very precise, like the way that uh, like the, the movie comes together, especially as an adaptation. I think it's easy for folks, especially because it's on Netflix, which I think is probably, it, it's good in terms of getting it eyeballs, but I don't think this is probably the right way to distribute the film. This is like the type of film you need to watch, I feel like, at Art House with like five other people spread out on like a Tuesday, or uh, like a sunday afternoon or something like that sunday matinee like we can really like kind of fully devote your attention to it would you agree with that yeah it feels like a weird movie i can picture myself in that theater eating the like it's that day when the popcorn is just right you know what i'm saying like i'm i'm there it just reminds me of the same movies i would see at my college art house theater like a like a saturday at like 2 45 and like nobody's talking to each other there are like four other people in the theater and then you go to the bathroom afterwards and like some guy next to you in the urinal is like pretty good movie right and it's like i guess um, <laughs> we don't talk I, in here yeah <laughs> uh not i guess because i didn't like the movie more just like i don't know who this man is why are you talking to me um I've had that experience a few times, if you if you can't infer. But, I, I, uh, the last time I had that experience, I think, was for the Hateful Eight during the intermission. Really? Yeah. Some, oh, some, what did they say? They were just like, wow, I, oh, what's going to happen next? And I'm like, oh, really? we don't talk in here. Okay, yeah. that's uh, Word of advice, because I know we have younger listeners. Um, don't spark up movie conversations in the yeah, bathroom yeah. with strangers. <laughs> not a good idea. Not a good idea. Your intentions may not be uh, bad, but it's not the time nor place. Um, but yeah, no, I think, uh, like you said before, like, I I think there is something very specific about the way she films this movie. It's not, like I said, particularly showy film, but like, even like, though it's very, uh, picturesque, there is something like this underlying current of terror that doesn't feel overstated, but it's like constantly fueling the film throughout. And I think a lot of that comes from really smart editing choices, but I also think it's just her as a filmmaker, one that's pretty adept, like you said, coming into this, um, early on, it just feels like she knows exactly what she wants to say with this text. She's not making like very like flashy choices, but all those choices feel very in sync with what she's saying. And it's a really impressive debut. Yeah, I think what's key to this debut, it's not just the technicals. Obviously, the technicals are impressive in their own right. I think what impresses me the most is that she's not flinching with this subject matter, which I think is is what makes or break this novel making it as an adaptation, because this this sparks really uncomfortable dialogue about a type of person who sees the downfall of motherhood and and kind of just wants to shun it. And it, it kind of humanizes and sympathizes a point of view that movies just don't usually talk about or don't usually get into, especially not at this scale. Like we get something, maybe like a French film here or there, will have something like a character like this as the protagonist. But yeah, I mean, Olivia Coleman in this, she's not like likable. Like she's she's mean. She, she's a uh, bit of a brat. And at the same time, I love her. She's complex. She's complex. Yeah. Like she, she's rude to people, but she kind of like catches herself and then tries to adjust. And she has a hard time being fake. 
You know, she has a hard time yes. with like niceties and she does like terrible things for no good reason. And like, I think the fascination behind this movie is getting to know her and understanding her or trying to. And I think when we get to the end of the movie, that is really what makes this movie kind of like stick out to me is how it's able to bring a character like her to life in kind of a profound way, like a way that I wasn't expecting. And yeah, I think in terms of like characterization, this is the kind of movie that like has my number. Yeah, I mean, I heard that complaint going into it that her character is unlikable. And for one, I think anyone who is just dismissing a movie because the character is unlikable is, uh, I think they're kind of showing their ass a little bit because, like, how many movies have we gotten with unlikable male characters that get praised, rightly or wrongly? And I feel like there's this kind of uh, this hypocrisy where it's just like, oh, because we get an unlikable female character. Not saying that's the case for everyone that dislikes the movie, but I think it is for some. So I felt like it was worth saying. But um, at the same time, uh, I was—I I guess because I was so—I uh, I was so often told that her character is unlikable that I guess I was expecting her character to be more unlikable. And I felt like her, the Jesse Buckley character, is more unlikable than the Olivia Coleman one. Like I feel like, like we said, she's kind of just more like standoffish and like she does kind of some impulsively selfish things. But it's not like she's like—I don't, don't know though. She's doing she's doing like an extended deception. Oh, that child that is like, yeah, that is like, it's really hard to sort of be like, I like this guy. You know what I'm saying? No, 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 but I get what you mean. Well, that, I mean, yeah, as we find out about that, but I mean like early on where it's just like, yeah, sure. Early strangers are coming up. It's like, Hey, can you like move? It's like, I don't know you. Like, why would I want to know? Just like you go like, right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, that's what I'm talking about. More like stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I think Olivia Coleman is, uh, as expected, really good in this movie. Um, and I, I think what I really like about Maggie Gyllenhaal's, um, direction is that obviously she knows as an actress herself how to really highlight her performance like Livy Coleman is an actress who can you know can be brought theatrical in certain roles but I think there's a chilliness here that I think is kind of hard to communicate if, if, if you have a director that doesn't showcase that well this performance can seem too understated and I think she's good about allowing Olivia Coleman to feel very uh um like uh reserved and in in the um, i'm not exactly sure what word i was looking for but like kind of reserved and and chilly but like you can understand her impulsively even if you don't understand exactly uh what's going on in her mind you can kind of sympathize where she's standing and understand her as a character and i think that's something that you know as we've been mentioning already for a first time first time filmmaker to communicate that uh visually really well is, is something that i find really impressive I think the word that I was gravitating toward for her character was there's something unsettling about this person. And for most of the movie, it's just it's hard to pinpoint why why am I so unsettled by this? And it's a movie that examines that reaction. It's about that. And it's sort of being like, you know, we put all of these expectations and all of these preconceptions of like what a mother is into people. Like people tell us, like, I have two kids and you make you immediately make assumptions about them. And I think this is a movie sort of like poking at like human beings are so much more complex than the the labels and the sort of archetypes that we create for people. I think that's why it's such a killer debut for me, because for a first time filmmaker and like you said, an actor to really get to the root of something like that in you know a way that by all intents that I can tell is pretty true to the novel. I haven't read the whole thing. But uh, certainly is like capturing the spirit of that novel and like what it's trying to investigate. Yeah, I think that this movie really lands. Now, is it a movie that I think is going to like 
rattle your bones and you know mm-hmm. invigorate you know your thirst for cinema <laughs> not necessarily i think i think that it's a, a really fun thinking movie that uh maybe fun isn't the right word but i think it's 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 one that i went through really interested the entire time and and, and i certainly got a few things out of it uh, not not to say that it's for sure the most entertaining and amusing film you can watch but not that it's trying to be right well that's why it- I mean, look, like, I mean, I know Power the Dog is doing well in there, so I don't want to assume that, like, um, Netflix users have, like, kind of restless fingers, but I, I do feel like this is the type of movie that probably is best benefited by, like, wrestling with it in the theater, if you could. Like, you know, certainly, like, if you were to kind of, like, sit with it and, like, kind of stew with it a little bit more, I worry with something like Netflix where, you know, you have the remote next to you and you're kind of dealing with a character who's a bit inscrutable and, you know, not always someone you can sympathize or relate to. You can, you know, kind of flip the channel and put on Cobra Kai. And, uh, you know, that, that, that I think hey, that's I a just gen- watch fourth season of Cobra Kai and it's it rules. So I'm not I'm Careful. not dismissing Cobra Kai. I'm just saying that, like, I think that temptation can come about a little bit easier on Netflix. So, I mean, I'm glad they distributed. I'm glad we're getting movies like this. But I also worry with a studio like or a distributor like uh, Netflix, if, if that if this is the type of movie that that best suits their um, their service. But at the same time, like I said, I'd much rather they have it and release it than the other way around. But. Yeah, I do want to mention that uh, I said that it's not that amusing. It has amusing moments, though. Oh, it's and pretty darkly funny in certain yes, moments. Yes, very darkly dryly, funny. Uh, Ed, Harris, funny yeah. Ed Harris dances in this movie. Show. Olivia Colman dances in this movie. And yeah. I really dug this Jesse Buckley performance. It's really good. I think what's good about it to me the most is that she and Olivia Colman look nothing alike. But for some reason, I bought yeah. that they're the same person. Like, no, I, I, I don't know how I they agree. did that. Like, because when I, uh, yeah. Because when I heard about the movie, I didn't know much about the plot. I was under the assumption that Jesse Buckley was playing her daughter. So when I saw there she was going to be her in the flashback scenes, I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of a, uh, you know, like I said, physically, I don't quite see the two. I mean, obviously, Jesse Buckley, I think, is taller than uh, Olivia Coleman, a few other uh, differences. But yeah, I think I agree with you that like it, it was a performance. I was like, I kind of had to sit with it as well. But I, I think ultimately, and it's, you know, it's kind of hard to follow Olivia Coleman, to be fair, but I think mm-hmm. Jesse Jesse Buckley is, uh, you know, obviously quite a standout actress. She continues to impress in a lot of things, including last year's um, "You Were Never Really Here." But I'm uh, thinking not, of sorry, not, uh, I'm thinking of anything. Sorry, um, but uh, yeah, I think she's really doing some outstanding stuff, and certainly this is no exception. Yeah, Jesse Buckley, one of our finest young actors today. I think that Dakota Johnson is quite good in this as well. Another one of our wonderful, you know, like new kid, new generation on the block kind of actor, uh, but kind of like mixing it up with some older proven actors, as we see in this with Ed Harris and Olivia Coleman and more. Now, I, I got a question for you, Will. It's a, it's a tough question. You know, it's one that okay. maybe is a little bit more open ended than I'm about to make it sound. But who is the lost daughter? Is it? Is it we Olivia are. Coleman? Is it is it all of us? Sure. Is it Maggie Gyllenhaal? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, without giving too much away about the plot, I, I do kind of like that there is that um, that sort of ripple effect to it. Like we're seeing, like kind of like three different uh, generations of motherhood. One, you know, like who uh, obviously is like follow like uh, Olivia Coleman's character, uh, you know, has a lot of regrets about how she handled her motherhood. Um, uh, we have a uh, 
Dakota Johnson, you know, just a newfound mother and having some of the feelings that a lot of people or a lot of mothers have, but maybe don't feel comfortable vocalizing. And then we have uh, another woman. I can't think of the actress's name, but like she is, you know, coming into motherhood a little bit late. But, uh, you know, she kind of uh, has her opinions already about what motherhood should be uh, and doesn't quite uh, feel comfortable with Olivia Coleman's uh, general disposition. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's I, it's a movie. I mean, it feels weird that we're like two guys kind of talking about this movie because it's such a, a woman-centric film. And I, I imagine there's a lot of great reviews that discuss these things a little bit more in depth and a little bit more thoughtfully. But, um, yeah, I think this is the type of movie that uh, I really like kind of chewing with and sitting with. And um, I don't know if it's quite going to hit my like best year list, but it's the type of movie I'm really thankful that we're getting still. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that if, uh, if there was one studio note I would put in, it's like, call the Lost Daughters, right? Uh, but no, on a more serious note, uh, one of my favorite lines from this movie and uh, kind of what you're talking about of like, yeah, you know, we're, we're two guys. We, we can't relate directly to this, but I do think it is pretty telling that we can get so much out of it just as like two outsiders, right, to this kind of story. And, you know, I think there are a lot of guys who will watch this movie and might be confused. They won't know what to make of it. And that comes down to a line in this movie. I think it was like somebody says, I'm an unnatural mother. And I think where the guys kind of fit into this story is that like, you know, a lot of those expectations, a lot of those like demands that are made of mothers can be rooted from not just other women, which this movie talks about, but also other men, you know, or men in general who are just sort of like, you're supposed to do this because you're the mother. You're supposed you have this responsibility and this and this and this. And what I, what I like about this movie is that it's, it's daring, you know, it's brave enough to say like, you know, there, there is a person who feels this way and, you know, shouldn't be judged for it. And even if you do judge her, you know, I, I just think this is a movie that's pretty good about, you know, dissecting that judgment in a, in a thoughtful way that uh, hopefully can bring some catharsis to people watching and being like, you know, I've always felt like that. You know, I could see people watching this. I've, I've met people who are just sort of like, I, I could never see myself having kids. Like, it isn't just like a momentary thing. It's just something I'm, you know, starkly opposed to. And I, I like the idea of them being able to watch a movie like this and being like, you know what, I'm not alone. Like, you know, and I, I maybe they always knew they weren't alone, but it's just, it's nice when a movie sort of validates that feeling that usually is being called unnatural. And so like, if a movie can do that, particularly one on Netflix, I think that's really great. I think that's really uh, a really good thing that can help people process some really tough stuff. So, you know, not to say that, you know, everybody who's going to get something out of it is going to be that kind of person. But uh, I do think that it's uh, certainly instructive in a lot of ways, having compassion and empathy yeah. for people who see the world differently and, you know, have the right mm-hmm. to do so. Yeah, I mean, I, I generally find it really impressive that this is a uh, American film because it does, like I think you mentioned earlier, have a sort of European feel to it, not only in terms of the location that it's filmed in, but just the general aesthetics and the, the way that it approaches these kind of uh, inscrutable subject matters. And, well, the author and pretty, is Italian of the, oh, the subject matter. Well? Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I just meant from a uh, the, the film production standpoint. Sure, uh, sure. Is she involved with the film? I don't know. Actually. I don't think so. She's not a yeah. producer. Okay. Well, obviously, I know, like you said, Maggie Gyllenhaal uh, adapted the screenplay, but I didn't know if she, like you said, produced the film. Right, um, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, we also, I mean, just like, obviously, like in America, we're kind of in this, like, and not to get, like, too uh, into it, but we're kind of in this weird time where, like, I think people have certain expectations for women and what women's roles in societies should be in terms of, like, their uh, anatomy and gender and then uh, their, like, motherhood and stuff like that. And I think having a film like this is so refreshing because, like you said, it asks a lot of tough difficult questions and it gives you a lot to chew on but doesn't give any particularly easy answers about either and yeah it's a really impressive film in that regard we finally we finally agree on a film this week i mean i guess we kind of agreed on saying 
too, I guess. Sure. Sort of. I don't know. We, we agreed sing, more than we did. And I'll, I'll say that. Uh, we went from sing two to singing the praises. Of <laughs> there you go. Lost yeah. We had some daughter. praises to sing for this yeah. one. Um, I, I want to say, you know, I, I don't think Paul Mescal is, you know, particularly utilized well here. Like I think he's good in the movie as will was kind of like, you know, Oh r- yeah. Will roundabout kind of guy. He, I, he's perfectly nice in this, but if people, yeah, but, people aren't um, familiar, he's, he is killer. In the show Normal People, it's a limited series that was on Hulu oh, last year. Oh, that's where he's from. Yes, and he is yeah. wonderful in that show. Uh, I was excited to see him in this, but I, I just didn't get like that full Paul Mescal experience. But uh, sure. certainly, certainly good in this movie. I was yeah, because I they introduced him fairly early on. And you're like, huh? I wonder if he's going to play mm, a bigger role later in the film, yeah. and not really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's more uh, of a plot yeah. device than anything else. Um, you know, not the well. Since we're talking about the men, the movie, I will say Ed Harris. So wonderful to see him again. He's fantastic oh, in this. Uh, and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's husband, Pierce Arsgaard, is in the film. And yeah, you know. yeah, he shows up uh, kind of like midway through the movie. And you know, I was kind of like, is this just going to be a cameo because of the relation? But no, he, yeah, he gets a few interesting scenes. And I like that. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like Hollywood never really knew what to do with Pierce Arsgaard. I feel bad for the guy. Yeah, I mean, he's true. probably very rich. Like, he, he always kind of got type cast into these like sort of villainous roles but i feel like there's always sort of a sensuality to him that's like kind of hard to put your finger on like there's a couple movies that deal with it like kingsley i remember mm, talking, boys don't like, cry boys don't cry that's a good example i guess uh i actually haven't seen boys don't cry so i, I don't want to speak out of turn with that oh no, you should it's quite good i want my favorite movie with him though where he's not he, of course he's not like really a villain in a traditional right. way is probably an education which uh you know the oh yeah that's a good yeah in education good example yeah, yeah. I, I think that like in that movie it's just like whew, that, it, it, yeah the the deep the depth of his acting is just so prof- like it's endless right. in that kind of movie but then you get him in something like magnificent seven you know where you're just like oh, okay but yeah but i mean i mean uh as we were i guess sort of alluding to like the the female lens i guess in this movie like the way that she's able to look at um pierre sarsgar in a way that's like you know very sexual in a way that i don't think we typically get in american films like this um it's refreshing to see you know you know you don't you, you don't really get that perspective i guess a lot in films like this yeah agreed well it's now playing on netflix and i think it's still playing in some theaters so it sounds like we both recommend the lost yeah. daughter ron tomatoes game Okay, well, Ashton, 163 reviews have been counted. One of them's mine. And so that gives you, you at least a little bit of a clue, right? Were uh, you positive on the film? I was positive on Yeah, I was quite positive on the film. So now I just want to make sure. I didn't know if you if your opinion changed, if you were more uh, favorable with time. You think I'm just like a fair weather. I'm just like going back and forth because you looked at my yearly rankings at your, and you were yeah, just Yeah, I looked like, at your yearly ranking and you're like all over the place now. I don't know what to think of <laughs> John Negroni film the critic right, now. I mean, I've been updating it all year. It's not like, right. but anyway, uh, 163 reviews have been counted for The Lost Daughter. What do you think the critics were is right now in Ron Tomatoes? 89%. 96 percent wow okay good good for good for last daughter yeah i think it it put it it perked up a little bit too because i think it was a little bit lower and then it kind of went up i think it uh you know because like when i was watching it at that point i didn't really know if it was going to be like a darling for critics it seemed like it could go either way i was kind of hearing from some people who had seen it from venice being like uh you know it's okay and then some people being like uh it's good um but yeah some of the effusive praise is starting to happen now i think that I'm I feel like it's more of a critic circle favorite than mm-hmm. a uh, award season favorite. Very but I can, yeah, but I can certainly see why uh, the Netflix put in there like Oscar contender roundup. 
Yeah, it's it is amazing how the favorite just sort of rocketed Olivia Coleman to this level. You know, like that was a movie people were not expecting well her to win best actress yeah, yeah. for and you know since then yeah. i think that yeah her career is just like the father this and the father yeah i mean yeah. I th- she she is certainly now like one of our top tier you know actors uh working right now uh what about the audience score we have 250 plus ratings not a lot of ratings for a netflix movie but what do you think what do you think audiences are saying about this one as a what do you think uh i'm gonna say 72 percent oh man 43 percent Ooh, 43 and there was i whole, knew they were gonna be more there was critical, a tweet but... thing a, a controversy yesterday uh where there were some people a debacle. a debacle a bit of a discourse where there were a couple of people who are horrible like if, if, if film twitter's worst who are just sort of like Ooh. this is the disconnect between critics and fans and people mm-hmm. were just like please stop talking like that was kind of the gist um they were like, I haven't seen a divide this steep. Critics are so out of touch. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, uh, I, I hate this. Oh, those folks. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought you were talking like critics being like, see, like, why can't audiences appreciate this movie? No, or other so, direction. Like, you're you're saying is- it's backwards. Like, critics should be, like, more critical of this film because the audiences are, quote, unquote, saying it how it is. Yeah, 250 um, plus ratings. <laughs> like, almost the same amount of critics and they're not even verified ratings so yeah well i mean do you think it's because it centers around a as we mentioned unlikable female because it's a tough watch it's not a traditionally like that's a thing that bugs me when people are like there's a divide between critics and fans usually when that's the case it's because it's a it's a tougher film it's a more challenging film and that's kind of to be expected it's like people like well yeah but there's no divide like between like spider-man no way home it's like yeah because that's not as challenging a film. Like it's well, pretty like easy to evaluate the quality of that one. There's a reason I think this movie didn't get dropped uh, on Christmas Eve the same way Don't Look Up does. And it's funny to think <laughs> that like Christmas. Don't Look Up is considered <laughs> more accessible to a wider audience than The Lost Daughter, but because it makes people feel good about themselves of like I have the right opinion about the world ending. No, I think like people watch the movie and get self-righteous. Oh, and, of course, like, yeah. Morally superior. You mean. Morally superior. There's like a bit of like a, I can be, so, I can bring on this righteous indignation because I see these people who don't like the movie and that like, makes me want to target yeah. them and just be like, you don't like this movie. You don't like this movie's message. And it's just like, my gosh, are mm. we in preschool? Like, okay. All right. This is why our average rating on Cinemaholics is going down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going a little bit too hard. Sorry. Um, sure. That's the lost daughter. Uh, we don't we don't have a cinema score, if you can believe it, but we do have a letterboxed average, and we've been doing this a little bit more recently. We didn't do it for Tragedy of Macbeth and Sing too, but uh, let's do it for this one. What do you think the average letterbox rating is? You know, letterbox of course is a five point system. Three point four, three point six, not bad. Hmm. Pretty pretty close, only point two off. Uh, yeah, three point six out of five. So yeah, most most people are pretty much giving it like three and a half stars. I think that's pretty in line. I think I'm around like a three and a half star if I had to do it. Uh, which is uh, quite good. Very good film. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Cinemaholics. We were glad to be here in a doc with you about movies. Next week, we are going to be doing our top 10 films of 2021. That is our own personal top 10s. And then, you know, our outliers, Mm -hmm. our favorite films of the year. We'll we'll try to talk about just some, you know, recurring trends that happened this year in film and maybe get some of that stuff off our chest. And yeah, also hoping that uh, for that episode, we can, you know, 
maybe do like a consolidate. What's our consolidated list? What's the best Cinemaholics movie of the year according to two of us? We'll see if that's if that's the case. I haven't. I've I've put I've turned in my top ten, but I haven't seen yours, Will. So I I'm excited to see what you have and have uh have planned for me. Um, I have a few more that I'm trying to catch up on. Before Same here. Mine could change. And yeah, uh, there are a few that I'm just accepting that I won't get to see i'm i don't think i'll be able to see drive my car i don't think i'll be able to see <sighs> memoria i don't think i'll be able to see um there i can't think of them off the top of my head there are a few others i knew i was like it's probably not going to happen in time unfortunately but for me the main uh, one is parallel mothers i, I that's parallel the one mothers, that that's i it. don't think yes. there's any way for me to see that oh uh, unfortunately uh, bad luck bang and looney porn that was another one that was like i don't think i'm going to be able to see this in time yeah. unfortunately but I have seen a lot of films I like and quite a few I'm excited to discuss. Yeah. How many views have you seen this year? I actually haven't asked you. Oh, uh, like first views or in the New year films. of 2020? I, I have no idea. Oh, okay. I know. But let me see my first we'll view it. count. It was. Uh, I'm running out of time. Um, <laughs> I'll finish it up by saying I saw... 380 films for the first time last year. Not counting rewatches. All right, However, that's good. I don't know how many of those are 2021. You can... My letterbox, is, uh, <laughs> my letterbox is publicly available. You can count them yourself. There you go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that'll do it for this episode of Cinemaholics. From the Internet California, I am John Negroni. And for the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. See you next time. <laughs>